Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. On February 28, 2001, Colin Whelan would begin his day like normal. He was a creature of habit and followed a similar routine each week. He got up and drove into Dublin, to his office in Irish Permanent. Like always, he rang Mary twice over the course of the day. During his lunch break, he walked down Dublin's Grafton Street to do a small bit of shopping. He wanted to get Mary a gift, something nice, to profess his love for her. He strolled through the doors of Brown Thomas, an upmarket department store. He looked around, through handbags, kitchenware, electronics and more. Until he came across a beautiful and expensive ornament boat. At £99, it wasn't cheap. But then again, it's hard to put a price on love. He went up to the cash register, and the assistant began to make small talk. What a thoughtful gift, she remarked. And he said, eh, I love my wife so much, she has one of these at home, we're going to get her another one, and then we have a pair. Hanging above Colin and the staff member was a well-placed CCTV unit, capturing multiple angles of the shop floor and cash desk. He was under the camera looking up at it and he paid with his credit card. And he was all chat to the cashier and she was saying, oh, it's not very good of you. And he said, yeah, she's brilliant. I love my wife. I'm going to surprise her. Later on that day, Colin would drive back to their house in Balbriggan with the gift securely placed in the passenger seat beside him. While Mary made dinner, Colin drove to the gym for a quick 30-minute workout. A normal, quiet and intimate night together. In many ways, the married life Mary had always pined for. She didn't know that that meal would be the last one she'd share with Colin. She didn't know that 30 minutes later, her life would come to a close. As Colin waited behind the ensuite door, rope in hand and ready to pray. It's not known whether Colin gave Mary her gift that night. In many ways, it might be better if he didn't, less cruel for what was to come. When Pat grilled Colin's story, he told him all about his trip to Brown Thomas. Why would I murder my wife? Don't I love her? Didn't I buy her a present that day? Like, you know. The story was backed up by the ladies in the shop. The cashier remembered the whole encounter. 
It's not often you meet a man who's so open about his love for his wife. Colin was playing it so cute too. Like he played the perfect husband. He used to send flowers to Mary in that six month period. Like I remember the girls at her work used to be saying to her, God, you, you got a good man there. You're very lucky. This trail of breadcrumbs left out for Pat and his team. This was Colin's way of trying to get ahead of the Gardaí. He thought he was clever. That he had planned the perfect murder. In reality though, he was way off. The Gardaí had him well in their sights. And it was only a matter of time before they would arrest and charge Colin Whelan for the brutal murder of his wife. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Ian Doyle. His favourite drink was gin and he'd often go into a pub and get a bottle of gin and drink it and start crying and he'd sit on his own and cry. I'd say it was thinking back of what he did, like, you know, and the foolishness of his behaviour. They're the memories I have to keep in my heart and my head because if not, I will go under. This is our second case of Pat Murray's career and the last one focusing on the murder of Mary Goff. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please take a moment and leave us a review in your podcast app. The evidence against Colin Whelan was damning. Pat had come across the realms of internet search history, from asphyxia to instant death, and everything in between. The cyber affair with Helen Shepherd from Wales showed Colin had no love for his wife. The only thing was, though, Colin's correspondence with Helen. That only began in December 2000. Yet his research on the most effective ways to kill his wife, that spanned long before that. Six months, in fact. Pat kept digging trying to get inside the head of Colin Whelan. Once again, it was his PC that would deliver the information that Pat needed. We discovered that he had an Irish life uh, policy out. Uh, he took it out before he got married to the value of £200,000. And after he got married, he upped it another 200000 to 400000 and he was paying his, his premium on it. The policy covered both Colin and Mary in the event of death due to accident or illness and was valid for 10 years in total. We were very, very shocked at a policy like it and we got expert opinion on it that it was a ridiculous policy on the, on the basis that, number one, the amount of money she was covered for wouldn't justify it on the basis of what her wages were and our living. And also the fact that after the 10 years were up, they wouldn't get any benefit from the policy at all whatsoever. The only way there would be a payout of one of them was to die. So they were both very fit and they were in their late 20s or early 30s. So they were, do you know what I mean? The likelihood of one of them snuffing it was small, like, you know, so why would you take out such a policy, like, you know? Because it was a joint policy, Mary's signature was present on the initial clause for £200,000. 
Pat had to try and establish whether this was something she entered into unwittingly. And our experts were inconclusive as to whether it was a forgery or genuine. It couldn't be determined. So uh, he definitely upped the policy to 400,000 without her knowing. This vital bit of information also gave context to some of Colin's other search history. Things that Pat had struggled to make sense of. You see, Colin had started spending the money in his head. Planning for his new lucrative bachelor lifestyle. He was looking up other things on his website like cars, expensive cars, expensive holidays, all that type of stuff. So he had this idea that he was going to cash in and have a better life for himself or whatever, you know. Stamullen Parish holds lots of memories for Sinead Howard Byrne. Her and Mary made their communion there together and their confirmation. In September 2000, Mary and Colin's wedding took place there too. Exactly a year out from when Sinead's own big day was to go ahead. At the time, it was a memory she thought she would cherish forever. Nobody could anticipate that just six months on from Mary's wedding, that same church would be full of mourners, grieving her loss and trying to contemplate how this could have happened. As Sinead's own wedding day approached, getting married was the last thing on her mind. I didn't want to get married. We, Pat and I were a lifetime together, really, and we didn't want to go through with it because it was just too hard. Because you knew you were walking up without her, number one, and they were walking up the same church, the whole lot. It was just too difficult. So we said no, we wouldn't go through with the wedding, but the Goff family wanted us to go through with it. Hard and all as it was, we did it, and my brother and sister decided to come on honeymoon with us to make make us go on honeymoon, to make us have the wedding. So we did. We all went on honeymoon together. But the wedding was the most difficult thing to walk up that aisle. Knowing she wasn't with me was absolutely devastating. The effects of trauma are a sudden bereavement. They can hit you to your core. For some, it can take months or even years to come out the other side. But for Sinead, that battle is still ongoing. Well, I was devastated when it happened and my health really deteriorated. I lost a stone within a week and I started to become unwell. And I had many, many operations after it and I still to this day am attending hospital over it. I was there last week, I'll be there next week. It just deteriorated so badly with the shock of what happened to Mary. Pat was confident Colin's time as an innocent man was drawing to a close. As investigations go, this was as clean cut as they come. It would be a big win for Pat in his first case, leading from the front. In the back of his mind, he was hopeful they might even get a confession out of Colin. I went to his house, his parents' house, and knocked on the door. Uh, I was let in. Uh, his father was in the sitting room, and I think his mother was there. And uh, I went to the bedroom, and he was in bed, and he was awake. And I says, how are you doing, Colin? Uh, I'm Pat Marrow. He says, I know well who you are, he said. I said, that's grand. Well, I said, get up and get some clothes on you. I said, you're coming with me. So he got up anyway and he got dressed 
And he was a big man, like he was six foot four, a big, well-built man, like, you know. Colin was brought into the station and questioned thoroughly. Surely he knew there was nowhere to hide now. He's sticking by his story that he was there and she fell down the stairs and this, that and the other. The first thing they put to him were Mary Cassidy's findings, that Mary had been strangled by means of a ligature. He was very uh, evasive, like when the crunch questions were put to him, he had no comment and that was it. When questioned about the cyber affair, he was slightly more forthcoming. After all, it doesn't prove that he murdered Mary, only that he was unfaithful to her. He did admit that he, you know, had certain passwords and usernames for the computers which matched up with the sites that he was looking up and we were able to establish, yes, he's the person who looked up these sites and uh, from what computers he did it and then he admitted he was talking to Helen Shepherd and that, like, stuff like that, you know. With the information at hand, Pat made contact with the DPP, not knowing whether they'd permit the murder charge at that point. At the end of his arrest and the few comments he made and with the evidence that we had, uh, they said to charge him with the murder and he was charged at the end of his detention. Moments like this are often less exciting than you'd think. Pat's bound by legal process, and he has to follow everything by the book. Otherwise, it could throw the case into jeopardy further down the line. So he was released from custody. It's only a technical thing. He's released from custody for the sake of two or three seconds, and then he's arrested again for the purpose of charging. And that's what what happened. He was charged, held in the cell overnight, and brought to Swords District Court the next day. By this stage, the media and those close to Mary had been informed that Colin had been charged. Unlike the case of Joe O'Reilly, coverage around Mary's murder had been quite subdued, as Pat was able to keep most of his findings out of the media. Once Colin was charged, though, things were different. There was a huge crowd gathered outside Swords District Court. And, uh, you know, it's always a battle to get a prisoner out of the van and he's handcuffed here and get him up and into the court, like, you know. There's fellas swinging punches trying to hit him and people yahooing and shouting and pushing and it's a wonder you don't get a box yourself but that's the way it goes, you know. Two families, once united in grief, had now firmly split. The Goffs were inconsolable at what Colin had done to Mary. Like in many cases such as this, the Whelans held firm and stood by their man. I remember uh, Colin's brother-in-law accosting me, I suppose, in the station one day and pointing his finger at me and telling me that I would be, you know, pay the price for this and all that type of carry-on. And he was quite irate about it. And I said, you just have to bite the bullet on these things and move on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a case that wasn't shy of twists and turns, another significant one was set to come. Colin was remanded in custody in Swords District Court, but later that day, his barrister, managed to secure bail through the High Court. This would allow Whelan to go free whilst awaiting his trial over two and a half years later. Colin's freedom, as it were, would still have its limitations. He would have to sign in at Balbriggan Garda Station daily and also surrender his passport. Although Sinead and the Goff family were relieved that Colin would see his day in court, the period in between got no easier for them. I was just in a state. I was... I was unbelievably upset and I couldn't move out of the hole I was in basically. I was too down and found it very, very hard to deal with. To have life without Mary wasn't ever going to be the same for me and I struggled big time and I'm still struggling if I tell the truth Uh, a long time later. It doesn't get any easier. Time doesn't heal. For Sinead in particular, the manner of Mary's death dealt another cruel blow. Her best friend was gone, and not coming back. But she also lost Colin as well. Actually, nobody has said that to us before, and it is very true, because there was the four of us, and we obviously lost Mary, and then never seen Colin after it. So it was like two people were gone out of your life, two big figures that were always there. So it it just, it knocks you for six. You can't, you can't, I can't even say how bad it makes you feel. Two years went by, and life carried on as normal for Pat. It was a busy period in his life. There was a lot of background work to pull together in advance of the court date, set for October 2003. Nobody heard much of Colin, and he seemed to be keeping a low profile. And he was signing on every day and was a good boy and doing what he was supposed to do, you know, until one day he didn't sign on. And the next day he didn't sign on. And then the third day his family said he'd gone missing. And 
I remember my superintendent ringing me, he says, that flute's after going missing. I think his car is after being found up at the Hill of Hoth, he says, so you, you might go up and have a look. And I says, fine. Pat drove to Hoth, sceptical as to what scene might await him. He pulled into the car park and spotted Colin's vehicle. So I went up and his car was there and uh, it was parked with precision. The window off the passenger side was three quarters down. There was a bottle of gin with only a few drops in it left in the back of the car. And uh, the keys to the car were left on the passenger seat. Could the pressure and guilt of the case have gotten to Colin? With vertical drops as high as 40 metres, the scene at Cliff Walk had a sad history of people ending their lives. It wouldn't be the first time a person awaiting trial had killed himself. But Colin was a cunning and also articulate man. Remorse wasn't something high up on his list. If you knew Colin Whelan, you just knew this is guy. He gave the impression that he'd have to throw himself off the cliffs and hold, like, you know. And he no more did that than the man in the moon, like. The precision of the parking and the way the scene was set these didn't seem like the actions of a suicidal man during his last moments on Earth. Pat wasn't the only one who had suspicions either. My dad and I and my mum drove up all around Holt just, just to see, but we didn't, we didn't believe for one minute that he was in the water. I think if he was going to commit suicide, he would have done it at the start. I don't think this was the time. He was never going to do it. It was all planned and he knew what he was doing. Nonetheless, the Guardi had to carry out a full land and sea search. Divers spent hours inspecting the waters and helicopters illuminated the cliff's rock shore below. But Pat's mind was made up. Knew he was gone, uh, but where has he gone to? But he was not certainly floating around in the water out there and the, off the hill of Hoth, like there's no doubt in my mind I just had to find out where was he like you know Colin Whelan was an unusual character one of the more unusual people Pat would come across during his career he had everything in life going for him things that people themselves would kill for a good and well-paid job, one that he was extremely talented at. A nice house in the town he grew up in, and a loving wife that adored him from the moment they'd met. It's hard to get inside the mind of a killer. After all, everyone is different. But there is something that differentiates Colin from the vast majority of others in society. You see, Mary Goff wasn't the first person that Colin Whelan had killed. In 1997, he was involved in a car accident in Gormanston, County Meath, killing Lil Murphy, a 61-year-old neighbour of his. He originally faced a drink-driving charge, but was eventually convicted of careless driving and avoided imprisonment. Both families were close at the time of the crash, and it's thought that the guilt Colin would have to now carry for the rest of his life 
might have played a part in him avoiding jail time for the collision. It's hard to correlate what effect that incident would have had on Colin Whelan in the years ahead. It was only three years later that he'd begin the research leading up to his own wife's death. Pat still has a hard time trying to make sense of Colin and his motives. He did what he did do for his own reasons. Maybe he wasn't well, like, you know, but he, he um, would he do the same again? I don't know. He would probably do the same again if he found himself in the same situation, that he was married to someone that he didn't like. He's emotionally stunted, yeah. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. But what has him that way? And that's the thing to maybe figure out these people, like, you know. In the weeks after Colin's disappearance, the Guardi were busy trying to establish where he could have gone. It was like he'd vanished and left no trace whatsoever. The initial manhunt was a large operation and various lines of inquiry were looked into. But as the weeks went by, things just went stale. Nobody really knew where Colin Whelan was. And for Pat, he'd have to park the case and pray that something might come his way. Well, what happened is that when someone goes missing like that, we go on to Interpol and Europol and we send out uh, notifications, you know, photographs and fingerprints and that type of stuff he's wanted. And it's sent around Europe, police, all the police stations in Europe will have it and this, that and the other. But for a policeman, let's say, to walk down the street and say, oh, that fella, I seen him in a poster. Like, you know, it could happen, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's slim enough, I'd say, you know, for that to happen. 14 months would pass before a clue would come his way. Pat got a call from a fellow guard. The guard's friend was from Colin's hometown and had been holidaying in Mallorca. One night, he took a visit to the Squadron Bar, a busy upmarket joint on one of the island's bustling strips. He sat down and ordered a cocktail as loud music played in the background. There were a number of people working that night, some on the floor and some behind the bar. Some looked like locals, but others not so much. One man in particular, he looked familiar. He wrecked his brain and sipped away at his drink. Holy shit, that looks like Colin Whelan. He had heard before of what happened to Colin's wife. The man didn't stick around long. He wasn't quite sure what to do with the information. The next night, unsure on whether his eyes, and perhaps the alcohol, that they may have deceived him, the man asked staff about the Irishman serving him last night, and was told it was Keen from Galway. Maybe the alcohol had impaired his judgement. After all, Colin's appearance wasn't overly distinctive outside of his height. It was probably just a coincidence. But the man's first judgement, that had been right. That was Colin Whelan behind the bar. He had somehow got himself to Majorca and was living under the guise of a man named Keen Sweeney. But he didn't relay it back to the policeman for a number of weeks or probably two months later because I don't know whatever reason he had for not saying it. But in the meantime, Colin Whelan had actually spotted your man as well. The pair had been in school together, 
although a few years separated them. As a precaution, Colin packed in his job that weekend and laid low for a period of time. And uh, several weeks or two months had passed and he met his boss in the street one day and said, uh, was there anyone in looking for me? And they said, no, no, there was no one. Was there anybody making inquiries about me? And, and like, you know, he was expecting us. And uh, they said, no, no, there's no one there looking for you. And your old job is there if you want to work short. And he said, oh, I'll take it back. And he went back working in the place. Because the guard's friend had taken his time to relay the information, Colin, or keen to his co-workers, had already begun back working in the bar before Pat learned of the possible sighting. He couldn't be sure how accurate the information was, but it was something he'd have to follow up. This wasn't as simple as jumping on a plane to check it out himself. There was a laborious process that would have to be carried out with the Spanish police force. The gap in time, though, that gave Colin a sense of relief. The man from Gormanston College mustn't have noticed him. He could carry on as normal, for now. A few weeks later, while working a late night shift, he met an Irish woman who was sitting at the bar. The pair got on well and chatted away about sport and other stuff. Colin even went as far as to tell the lady all about Keane's life, growing up in Galway. Taking a chance, he asked her for a favour. Could she get a rugby jersey over to him and gave her his email address and details and everything? And she said she'd do that, no problem. Now she went back to Ireland, believing she'd met Keen Sweeney, a barman that lived in Galway. And anyway, at the heel of the hunt, she was looking at the newspaper one night and the Goffs on their own bat had done an article, an article done on, on Colin and to look anyone with information. And he presto, the woman saw the picture in the paper and she read and she says, oh my good God, that's the guy, Keen Sweeney. The woman contacted the guardie without any doubt in her mind that it was Colin Whelan she'd been chatting to. She said, I have his, his, his handwriting. He wrote his name on the back of it. And she gave me the card where he had signed Keen Sweeney on the back of it. And we got that looked against the signature that he had made on the statement he had made on the night to the guards. And the handwriting was the same, you know. So there's no doubt it was Colin Whelan, like, you know, we believed it was him. Pat made contact with the Guardia Seville. They'd arranged to stake out the bar and try and get a clear photograph of Colin on site and at his home. They came back to us and says that the man working there is definitely the man in the photograph that you supplied to us. It was the same address as the other guy had given, so we said, we'll go now, you know, so we applied for a European arrest warrant. Colin lived a normal life in Majorca, although there's no doubt that he would have spent much of his time looking over his shoulder, always in fear of who might be behind him. He was comfortable enough and he'd struck up a relationship with an English girl and he was going out with an English girl. I can't think of her name now, but he was sort of had a relationship with her. When we did make the inquiries over there, we discovered that he often, his favourite drink was gin and he'd often go into a pub and get a bottle of gin and drink it and start crying. And he'd sit on his own and cry. I'd say it was thinking back of what he did, like, you know, and the foolishness of his behaviour. And like you have to understand at this stage, like he had been served the book of evidence and he knew everything that we had on him. He knew his game up and um, I'd say, he, you know, he, he knew he was in a bad spot, like, you know, but then he was prepared to carry on and start a relationship with another woman. And To avoid Colin Scarpering once more, 
Pat secured a European arrest warrant and prepared himself to go out and assist in the operation. The type of warrant he had allowed him to be present during a search of his house and take with him any evidence he saw fitting. But as it transpired and it worked out, the Spanish went on their own uh, solo run and arrested him. After over a year and a half on the run, the jig was finally up for Colin. He was taken to a Spanish prison in Palma and eventually would be extradited back to Ireland. At this stage though, the details of his arrest had not made their way back to Balbriggan Garda Station. Somehow, the news leaked to the Irish media, catching Pat completely off guard. And the family, the Goff family, didn't know anything about it. And I got a phone call. They say, we have a, a reporter here at the door looking for a comment. They're saying that Colin has been arrested. Is that true? And I said, I'll ring you back. So I got on to extradition and all that. And they said, yeah, he's been arrested, all right. And he denied initially that he was Colin Whelan. But when they checked the fingerprints, it was the same person. And then he said, yeah, I'm Colin Whelan. On the 7th of July, 2004, Pat flew to Spain with extradition papers in hand. Colin would be flying back to Ireland to face trial for the murder of Mary Gough. Everyone that's extradited from Spain is extradited from Madrid airport. And uh, under the airport, like there's a big cells and facilities for holding prisoners in there. And it was really like silence of the lambs. I remember walking down and your man said, he's down there. And there's a big just corridor and cells either side, some of them with glass and some of them with bars and stuff like that, you know. So about three quarters of the way down, I looked to my right and there was Colin Whelan. He was standing up straight and he changed, he'd grown a beard. And I looked at him and he looked at me and it was all said in the blink of an eye, like I have you. And he knew, game's up, like, you know. And that was it. I was very glad that Colin was caught. I think Pat Murray did an amazing job and bringing him home and he got justice. But at the end of the day, he will get out and Mary's not here. I will always have Mary in my life. As I say, I have parts of her all around the house, little candles and, and bits and pieces that she gave me over the years. And I look at them all the time. There's not a day goes by. Mary's always mentioned and she's always thought about. It's just, you think about everything that we went, went through in school. We had such fun in secondary school. We probably shouldn't have had as much fun in secondary, but we did. And they're the memories I have to keep in my heart and my head because if not I will go under Ladies and gentlemen uh, good morning from the conference young captain I'd like to welcome you aboard this uh, boat 737 and do hope you uh, will have a pleasant taking off from Madrid airport Pat was unsure what form Colin would be in it could make for an awkward journey for the pair and all prisoners always sit at the back of the the back of the plane, you know. And I was handcuffed to him, and uh, but he was quite pleasant, I must say. And I know he wasn't in any way abusive or difficult or anything like that. And I think he had 
he was accepting his fate or had accepted it over there and was waiting. This was part of the process, like, you know. We had good conversation on the way back. I told him about Madrid. I was taken back. I said I was there for the day or two days, whatever it was. And I said, yeah, God, the city is lovely, like, and there's lovely fountains and very ar- architecture is lovely. And, like, you know, it's amazing how people can sit out in the square at 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning and have a coffee or... You know, it's not like Ireland to be rousing and kicking over tables and he was laughing. It's a more peaceful place, he said, you know, it's a more civilised place or whatever. That's, we were talking about that type of stuff. Pat had one question for him. How did Colin manage to avoid the Gardaí and get himself to Mallorca? For him, it was the final piece of the four-year puzzle. I says, where do you go to? And he says, sure, I got the train from Hoth. There's no CCTV there. He was right, there was no CCTV, so he knew we would look at that. So he says, I got the train to Dublin and then one from there to Belfast. And he says, I knew you just wouldn't be, have access to the CCTV at the airport in Belfast. And he flew to London, got from London to Barcelona, and then got a boat from Barcelona to Mallorca. But it wasn't just that simple. He'd surrendered his passport to the Gardaí. During his bail period... Colin had begun plotting his escape. Knowing he'd need a passport to get out of Ireland, he identified a local man named Keane Sweeney. Colin and Keane bore a similar enough resemblance. And through a bit of research, he was able to find out all the details he'd need to file for a passport under Keane's name. With 30 minutes left before the plane would touch down at Dublin Airport, Colin revealed one final piece of information to Pat. And he said to me, he says, you're very, very good at your job, he said, you know. So I was sort of a little bit, you know, well, anyway, I have you here beside me, I must be doing something right. But uh, he said, another week, he says, week and a half, I was gone, you would never got me. He says, I was going to Singapore, you never get me. And I'd say he was right because his honeymoon, he went to Singapore on his honeymoon, like, you know, so he, it's a place he would... Not know well, but he was there, like, you know. If he got to Singapore, I'm not saying that we'd never have got him, but, oh, it would have been a long, hard slog, and I'd say it'd be several years before we would have got him. On the 12th of April, 2005, Colin would eventually plead guilty to Mary's murder. He began a life sentence for the crime and is still currently in prison. Not having to sit through a long and detailed trial was welcome news for the Goff family and Sinead Howard Byrne, I can't even say how much I miss her. It's unbelievable. And and it's very, very hard to deal with not having her here every day. No time will make that any better. It was so tough. It just brings back all the memories when you think of it. But I found it very, very hard. She's in my heart and always will be. And I have to say, I wish she was here today. Months after the trial, when Pat was busy working on other cases, he got a phone call out of the blue. It was from Colin's brother-in-law, the one that accosted him in the police station during the investigation. He says, uh, where are you? Well, I said, I live in Navan. I'm in Navan at the moment. And he said, uh, I'm going to drive to Navan. I want to see you. And I says, fair enough. So I brought him to my house and we come in and I made tea. 
and he said to me, I want to apologise to you and I want to look you straight in the face and say sorry for the way I treated you and I want to congratulate you on an investigation that was very, very thorough. And I said, thank you very much, it means a lot now too. He says, no, that's it. I wish you all the best. So that was it. Next time on The Making of a Detective. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 been very bad and 1 been very good. What number is Niall? Oh man, everything falls out here. You're just sitting there, but all your all your insides are gone. Everything is gone. Your heart is gone. Your brain is fried. The making of a detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series is written and produced by me, Ian Doyle. Next Thursday, we'll be back with another gripping case, further into Pat Murray's career. If you want to learn more about the life and career of Detective Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective, by Penguin Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.